Our Father, we thank you for gathering your people here this morning uh, to worship you and to make yourself known to us. Um, I just pray that in everything we do, Lord, that you would be glorified here, that you would be lifted up, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts to, to open them to, to have eyes to see and understand who you really are, to, to, to see your great love for us and respond rightly to it. I pray over the next few minutes that you speak to each one of us what you want said, that you have us hear what you want us to hear, and that you do your work in us, that would praise you and glorify you and magnify you in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're, uh, we're jumping back into the Gospel of John, picking up where we left off in the fall, and, and we're going to spend the next few months sort of walking through the second half of this book. Uh, as we've mentioned numerous times already throughout our time in John, uh, his purpose in writing this book is stated near the end. I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm a broken record, and if you're tired of hearing it, oh well. John 20, verse 31 says this, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So certainly, like, the whole book is aimed at this sort of double-fold goal, right? That we believe Jesus Christ is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have life in his name. Now, there's not really a clean, like, break where one part of the book deals with one part of that, and another part of the book deals with the other part of it. However, like, sort of in the first part of this book, Jesus himself spent a great deal of time just sort of traveling and demonstrating and even proclaiming that he was the Christ, that he was the Son of God, and even calling people to believe in him in order to find life. And then in the second half of this book, which we're moving into, Jesus really turns inward to those who believe he is who he says he is, mainly to his disciples, and he invests in them deeply. And he spends like these last crucial days of his earthly ministry leading them to know what it means to have life in his name. But what is life? Life is a hard thing for me to define at times, because when talking about life, we could be talking about a, a number of things, right? Like a quick Google search pops out this definition, the condition that distinguishes animals and plants from inorganic matter, including the capacity for growth, reproduction, functional activity, and continual change preceding death. And then this definition also, it's the existence of an individual, human, or an animal. So just there, like we can talk about life from sort of like a purely biological perspective, but we can also talk about life as it pertains to an individual and to our existence, to the span of an individual life. In the New Testament, it generally seems to refer to this type of life by using the Greek word bios. And certainly as John began the book by proclaiming that all things were created through Jesus and without Jesus not anything was made that was made, then our life, like as in our bios, our, our time of living and breathing and existing here is found in Jesus, who's the creator of all things. But the Greek word that John uses in chapter 20, verse 31, the word for life that we find when we are believing in Christ as our Savior, is not bios, but it's zoe. And I might be saying it wrong. It might be zoe. I'm not really a, a Greek uh, expert, but zoe. 
And Zoe means more than just our mere existence. It refers to one who is possessed of like a vitality or is animated. Or even it talks about the vitality of the soul, like which goes on from our limited existence in the biological body. Zoe is the word used to talk about life eternal in the New Testament. And it points to this truth that we exist at a deeper level than just like our flesh and our blood. For those who believe in Jesus, there's life in us that comes from like the eternal God and is eternal and that it's meant to lead and to, yeah, to lead our bodies with purpose. This is the life Jesus leads his disciples into. And this is the life that John wants us, the, the reader, to be led into by Jesus as we continue through this gospel. John's hope in writing is that we will not only exist but that we believe in Jesus so that we have eternal life in our heart and in our mind and in our soul as we are possessed and we are animated and we find our vitality in Jesus. Now, chapters 11 and 12 of John are sort of the transition uh, into the last days before the cross. And John eleven fifty five through 57, it may be the pinnacle of that transition. It says this, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know that they may arrest him. Here we see that the arrest of Jesus is imminent, and therefore so is his death on the cross. And Jesus knows all of this, so he leads the way into it. And in so doing, he is now leading the way for us all into life in his name. In the fall, we ended part one of this book by reading through uh, almost all of chapter 11. And today we're going to look at chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 26. Now there's a lot going on in these 26 verses. It basically breaks down into three scenes. One is that Mary anoints Jesus' feet. Number two is the triumphal entry. And then three is some Greeks come seeking Jesus. And each one of these stories can be told on their own, and they often are, especially the story of Mary uh, anointing Jesus and the story of the triumphal entry, which is when Jesus like, came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, being praised by all the people who were waving palm branches and they were laying a path down for him like a king. And that scene, of course, it takes place just one week before Jesus would be resurrected. And it's the scene we go to on the Sunday before Easter, Palm Sunday. But while these stories can be told separately, they also have something in common. There's a thread running through them that I think John means to be noticeable, and, and that's what I want us to look at today. And so we're just going to jump right into those. Uh, let's start by taking a look at the story of Mary anointing Jesus at Bethany. John 12, verses 1 through 8, if you want to turn to it in your Bible, or you could also follow along on the screen. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and, they, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bags, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you, you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, the Mary in this story, of course, is one of the sisters of Lazarus who was raised from the dead. And contextually, from John's storytelling, we already know that this family was fairly well-to-do. Like, for instance, like back at Lazarus's burial, all the particulars of who were gathered there, the professional sort of grieving that would have been going on there, all of that is a clue to the fact that they were pretty well-off. But then there's the bigger clue in this passage here. This perfume itself is worth at least 300 denarii, according to what Judas says about selling it to help the poor, right? So 300 denarii. A denarius is like one day's wage. So we're talking about 300 days wages. So that's 10 months of wages. Almost a year's worth of of, of an average person's pay is what this bottle of ointment costs. The fact that Mary has that oil signals her wealth, yet... It isn't something that's just like lying around, right? It's certainly a very valuable possession, even for somebody who has wealth. And it wasn't meant to be like poured out on one person. It wasn't meant to be lavished on somebody in such a way. Just a little of such a perfume or such an oil on the head of like an honored guest would have been somewhat normal in such an environment maybe. But to anoint Jesus' feet... And with so much of it so that the whole house is just filled with the fragrance. Like as it is, Mary has done something extravagant to to honor Jesus. And why not? Right? Like we know from before Lazarus' resurrection that Mary believed that if Jesus had been there, her brother would have never died because he would have been able to heal him. But now she's seen him raise the dead. She's heard his call to everlasting life. He's raised her brother from the dead. And she believes that he truly is the Christ, that he's the Son of God. She honors the feet of Jesus as more valuable than than the head of even like the most esteemed royal guest. And then Jesus accepts this. Even at Judas' protest, he lets her do this, noting that the poor will always be there to care for, and he would not. And then you have Judas in this scene, like what's going on with him. Something deeper is going on in his protest, right? And John wants to be sure that we know what's going on there. Though Judas protested that the perfume could have been sold and used to help the poor, which seems like a pretty valid thought, right? John says that he said it not from a place of caring for the poor, but because he was a thief who helped himself to the money bags. See, Judas saw like that expensive perfume being poured out on Jesus' feet and he wanted that value for himself, right? He didn't, I mean, he didn't want his own feet anointed with the oil probably, but he wanted the, the money the perfume could have provided. He wanted access to that. There were some crooked desires possessing Judas and Judas cloaked his shameful desires with a righteous-sounding protest. Mary honored Jesus with extravagance in order to honor him to the best of her ability. And Judas coveted and he protested. Let's read next from John 12, 12 through 19. 
says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. (coughs) The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Excuse me. Again, this is the scene from Palm Sunday. It's familiar. People who have heard Jesus is raising Lazarus from the dead, who were beginning to believe that he, he might in fact be the Savior, they're waiting for him to come. And so they go meet him, and they're waving palm branches, and they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're praising him extravagantly, making proclamations of his royalty. Like really, it would seem that they are on the same page as Mary. But we also know that within a few days, the crowds that were gathered wouldn't praise him. Rather, they would cry, crucify him. How could it change so quickly? John here in this passage is intentional in telling us that the crowd went to meet Jesus because they had heard of his signs, specifically the sign of raising Lazarus. But what's underneath it all? How can you proclaim him as king on Sunday and then shout crucify him within just a few days? Well, Jesus has said this in many ways and in many times, but after feeding the 5,000, The crowds looked for more signs from him, more temporal works from him. And Jesus told him this. It's back in John chapter 6, verses 32 through 33. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Essentially, he means this. You only want me to give you things that sustain and prosper the physical, temporal life, the bios life. But I do those temporal things so that you would know that I am the eternal, the one who gives you eternal life, the one who gives you the Zoe life. And it's the same with the crowd in Jerusalem as it was with the crowd at the feeding of the 5,000. They're looking for a savior for the day. Right? They want a king who can give them power and wealth and honor or whatever temporal thing that they may desire. And Jesus is just about something deeper. He's about something far more valuable, and that is the life that is eternal. When you really boil it down, the crowds would let Jesus play the part of a king, and they'd honor him with extravagance and royalty so long as they thought that they could get what they truly desired from him. And what they really wanted was more signs. What they really wanted was more wonders, more bread, more temporal things. They most desire, mostly desire something temporal, but Jesus is offering something eternal. Now, let's look at this final scene. John 12, verses 20 through 26. 
Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is such an interesting scene to me. It always has been. It's kind of bizarre, really. Like, these Greeks come seeking Jesus, and I don't know if you noticed, but like, uh, Philip and Andrew come, and they tell Jesus, and he doesn't really answer whether he'll see them or not. He just, I just imagine he looks off and starts going off into his speech, you know. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, right? The grain of wheat must die for it to bear more fruit. Why does he do that? Why does the arrival of these Greeks trigger like just the speech? Why does it signal that the hour had come? I think it's because Jesus wants to give life to all who would come and seek him. This is what he came for. But to give us life, he'll have to do more than tell more people who he is, right? He will have to do what he came to do. He will have to actually give his life for us to find ours in him. These are the actions that he came to take. But also, this is the way that he came to lead us into as well. Words will only go so far. Jesus must show us the way so that those who seek him can follow him. So he tells the way that he's about to lead us in, right? Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And here, in Jesus' words, there's a third Greek word for life, and that word is suke. Of course, this is where we get psyche. It's the the, the soul life, it's the mind, the heart, and the will. I kind of think, it, think of it as the you of your life. And Jesus, Jesus basically says that your soul life can either be driven by the bios or it can be driven by the zoe life. That which is of this world or that which is eternal. That which is temporal or that which is everlasting. Only one or the other can possess you. It seems like an obvious choice, which one to go for, but the truth is that because of the fall and because of our sin, like our heart and our soul is bound, and I mean like we are captive to desiring temporal things over eternal things. But it's not what we are created for. We're broken and we need saving. And this is the thread that John has been weaving through these stories. That is... We all operate from the heart and mind and soul part of ourselves. This body and everything that we do in it, it stems from who we are in that deeper soul life part of us. And that part of us, because of our sin, has forgotten the truth about God. It's forgotten the eternal. And it only recognizes this temporal existence as like the whole of our life. 
Like, look, the, the Jewish crowd on Palm Sunday, they knew about the promised king. They knew about the promised Messiah. But like the deeper heart of them had obviously forgotten the eternal God and was clinging to this temporal life as their whole. And therefore they worshiped Jesus with like a self-serving worship only until they found that he wouldn't be who they wanted him to be and then they sought to get rid of him. And Judas followed Jesus. He witnessed everything there in person, but his deeper heart was still seeking to serve his own life over that of others. We see that at his deeper heart, he valued himself more than it valued Christ. Only Mary demonstrates actions that Jesus seems to indicate came from the right heart. But even her actions, I think, could have just as easily been self-serving, right? She could have wanted to show just how rich she was so that others would like hold her in some esteem. She could have wanted to be Jesus' favorite. She could have had a number of bad reasons to do what she did. But as it was, her heart was just captured by Jesus, Her heart was awakened to who he really was and how valuable he really was. And so with her possessions and with her like here and now existence and in that moment, she worshiped Jesus lavishly and rightly. She gave up something of great value, perhaps without considering how to even justify her actions, but she did it in order to honor Jesus in action to reflect the posture of her soul. She couldn't help but live from what her soul desired most any more than Judas or the crowds could. And we all operate from that part of us. Everything we do is an act of worship towards one thing or another, towards ourselves or towards God. And only when we see that Jesus is the Messiah for the whole of us, for the heart and the soul and the mind and the body uh, parts of us, only then will we find life in him. The way of Jesus is to lose your life in this world, to find it in him, in eternity. The the statement sounds upside down, turned around. But after this scene, if you read on, as we will through the next few months, Jesus spends the rest of his time with the disciples just leading them to see what he means by this and bidding them to trust him wholly and to follow him. He just like dives in and he helps them recognize the reality of what's actually in their heart. And then he helps them to see how he came to save and bring eternal life and abundant life to those parts of them. He shows them over and over again how everything that looks upside down is actually right side up. And then he helps kind of turn them around so that they can see it rightly. Like he will wash their feet and expose the parts of them that wants to be honored as a leader but would reject the, the, the humility and being humbled like a servant. Because deep down, their heart would value themselves over others. And then he shows them his way, a more life-giving way. He's going to eat and he's going to drink with them and he's going to expose their own desires for, for mere bread and wine, though what they really need is his presence and they need his body and they need his blood and the life that he gives. He's going to call them to pray and they will indulge themselves in sleep instead because deep down they want comfort now more than they desire eternal life. He tells Peter how he's going to deny Jesus three times, and Peter denies Jesus three times to preserve his own life rather than trust Jesus with his whole life. Because Peter still thinks he can preserve his own life better than Jesus can, like many of us probably do. And there's more. Everything they do exposes who they really worship, what they 
value above all. And everything that we do is an act of worship towards one thing or another, towards ourselves or towards God. And only when we see Jesus for who he really is, that he is the eternal life-giving God who gives us himself and gives us the ability to live in him and from him, only then will we recognize that he's far better than anything that is temporal. So the call today and and through the coming weeks and even this season going forward uh, is to test your motives in your worship. And when I say test your motives in your worship, I mean test your motives in everything you do. Because everything you do worships something. Begin to observe and to examine the things that you pursue each day, the things that you do each day, the way that you feel each day. Prayerfully, prayerfully, like look up under all these things, asking that the, the Spirit would even work in your heart and give you eyes to see what you may not have seen before, asking that you can see with the eyes of Jesus. Who or what possesses you? What do you operate from? What's driving you? I think Judas's crooked desires weren't really so far fetched from some of my own. You know, I've been getting these like reminders on my, my watch and on my phone from the health app. This is only for Apple people. I'm sorry. There's probably some sort of app out there for uh, the other platforms that I'm not aware of. But it, it, it's asking me how I feel today, right? It's a mindfulness thing, which I know, whatever. But I found it really helpful. As it comes up, it does help me recognize what I'm feeling in the moment. Am I dissatisfied? Am I a little bit down? Am I a little bit up? It even asks, like, what's caused? What do you think that's related to? Maybe it's work. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's whatever. You know, and and when that reminder pops up, it helps me to examine it and go, what's underneath that? Like, what am I truly desiring if I'm feeling dissatisfied right now? What am I truly desiring? What what do I want? Something temporal or something eternal? What am I looking to for satisfaction? That's just a free tip. If you have that app, it's a good way to start checking underneath all those things on a regular basis. Or find something to remind you to look into everything you're doing and everything you're feeling. It's all worship. It's all worshiping someone. Let's ask the hard questions of ourselves. As we prepare sort of to start up this season uh, in missional communities and we prepare to walk through Lent together even as a church over the coming weeks, this is going to be a good thing to keep working on together. Let's look under our actions and our thoughts and our feelings and our desires and let's turn together to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If you want to find that life that is abundant, if you want to find that life that is eternal, like from right now and forever, look to Jesus. And may he help us all acknowledge where we have refused to lose our life. And may we find it in him alone. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is better. I'm just going to invite us into a time of response. You can take some time to even begin to prayerfully ask some of these questions, or even just to invite him to help you see yourself and see up underneath these things and to recognize what you're worshiping. In this time, the band will come and they'll lead us, uh, as they do each week, in, in worship. Um, and in response, we'll come together and you can come and you can 
you can give your tithes and offerings in the back. There's a, a box back there on the, the sound booth rail uh, where you can give. You can give online. Some of you, it slips out already. Uh, we, we invite you to take a moment in this time of response to remember that gift, to give that gift, and, and to remember who God is, that he is your provider, that he is your giver of life and everything that you have, and that you're giving that gift not out of a sense of obligation, but from a sense of worship. And if you're not, it's a good thing to look up under as well right now. We're also going to come and we're going to take communion together as we do each week. Um, and as you come, you can come down the aisle, you can take the bread and you can dip it in the wine or the juice, which represents, of course, the body and the blood of Jesus that was given for each one of us. And as we come, we're, we're, we're making a, a proclamation that this is who Jesus is. He gave his life. He lost his life to give us eternal life. And he did. He died and he rose again, and he's invited us to believe and to find our life in him. So we invite you to come and to remember that truth and to proclaim it to one another even in our action. Whether you're a member at Redemption Church or not, if you're a Christian, please come, remember, and proclaim Christ along with us. I'm going to pray for us, and we will move into this time.